1998, uh, President Clinton was asked a series of questions before a grand jury about his relationship with Monica Lewinsky. And at one point, the prosecutor asked the president about a statement that he had made, denying any involvement with Ms. Lewinsky. The prosecutor asked, that statement was an utterly false statement. Is that correct? And President Clinton infamously answered, it depends on what the meaning of the word is, is. See, the president didn't want to tell the truth, admitting that he had previously lied. And he also didn't want to lie under oath. And so he tried to find a middle way between telling the truth and lying. The middle way of prevarication. Prevarications, when you try to avoid telling the truth, often by playing word games, hoping that through your cleverness you can escape the consequences of lying. And quibbling about the meaning of the word is is a very good example of prevarication, but it's certainly not the only example. Politicians on both sides of the aisle prevaricate regularly, don't they? And if we're honest, at times we have to admit that we have all prevaricated too. Or sometimes we just out and out lie and we don't even try to cover it up with word games. And then after we lie, when we have to think about what we've done, we rationalize our deception. We lie to ourselves about the lies we've told others. You know, the truth can be a very hard thing to face. And so it's very easy for people to wind up in an ocean of lies. But the people of God, those who are believers in Jesus Christ, are to be people who love and speak the truth. And we're going to see that's exactly what the Lord Jesus says in our passage today as we continue to look at the Sermon on the Mount. Today we're going to be in Matthew chapter 5, verses 33 through 37. And as we pick up today, I'll remind you that we're in a section of Jesus' sermon in which he is discussing the Old Testament law. Jesus has declared that the Old Law and the entire Old Covenant between God and Israel, built on the uh, law that was given to Moses, all of that anticipated the coming of the Messiah. And Jesus says, now I am here. And so Jesus says, he is the fulfillment of the Old Covenant. He is the fulfillment of the law. He is the law's authoritative interpreter. He is the law's culmination and completion. And after establishing that, now throughout chapter 5, Jesus has been addressing various parts of the Old Law. And as he does so, he rejects false interpretations of the law that were being taught by the religious teachers of his day, the Pharisees and scribes. And Jesus is showing, in fact, where the law really points. And as he does so, he issues new ethical instruction for his disciples, those who will live not under the old covenant and the old law anymore, but who will live under the new covenant, which Jesus will inaugurate when he dies on the cross. And so Jesus is setting the record straight about the law on a number of issues, and at the same time, he is issuing new commands to his disciples about these same issues. And today, Jesus is going to take on the question of honesty. And we'll see what Jesus has to say in three points. First, we're going to see that Jesus introduces the subject of honesty by paraphrasing the Old Testament law's rules concerning vows and oaths. Second, we'll see that Jesus issues new instruction 
commanding that his disciples refrain from swearing oaths, instead requiring us to be people of plain and honest speaking. And then third, we will briefly consider some practical implications of Jesus' instruction. Let's start with our first point. If you've got a Bible, turn to Matthew 5.33. And there we read that Jesus said, Again you have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. Now, in our last three sermons, we've seen that Jesus has addressed three different ethical issues. And each time, Jesus started with a quotation. Twice he's quoted from the Ten Commandments. In verse 21, he says, you shall not commit murder. Verse 27, you shall not commit adultery. But last time we saw that Jesus quoted something that was not actually from the Old Testament. He quoted the Pharisees' misinterpretation of the Old Testament. In verse 31, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. Now, in verse 33, what is Jesus quoting? Well, like last time, Jesus is again not quoting the direct words of the Old Testament, but neither is he quoting a false interpretation of the law. Here Jesus is paraphrasing a number of commands from the Old Testament. Commands about swearing before God. Commands like Numbers chapter 30 verse 2, which says, If a man vows a vow to the Lord, or swears an oath to bind himself by a pledge, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. Now, this verse regulates two situations that involve swearing before the Lord. The first situation is a vow to God. And this is where someone says, out loud, not just in their thinking, but out loud, they say to God, I swear to you, God, that I will or I will not do something, or that I will give you something. Now, in the Old Testament, we most often find vows in association with prayer. God, if you help me with this matter I'm praying about, I vow to do X. A good example of this is Hannah in 1 Samuel 1, who said, God, if you give me a child, I will dedicate my child to your service. But vows were not only connected to prayer. Vows could also be offered freely as an expression of devotion to God. Because I love you, God, I vow to serve you in this way. And that's the first situation regulated in this verse, vows. The second situation is closely related to the first, but it is slightly different. And this is an oath. Well, what's an oath? An oath is when one person says to someone else, I swear that I will or will not do something, and then invokes the name of God as a guarantee for the promise. The most common oath sworn in the Old Testament went like this. They would say, as Yahweh lives, and then they would make a promise. And we find this 36 times in the Old Testament. And the idea is, someone is swearing to do something, and they say, if I fail to do this, may the living God avenge my oath-breaking. And so Numbers 30, verse 2 says that vows, or oaths, which are made before God, must be kept. The Israelites were to do exactly what they swore to do. And they were to do it promptly. 
Deuteronomy 23, 21 says, If you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay fulfilling it. For the Lord your God will surely require it of you, and you will be guilty of sin. Verse 23 says, You shall be careful to do what has passed your lips, for you have voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God what you have promised with your mouth. Ordinarily, vows and oaths were voluntary matters. Now, there are a few places in the Old Testament where, say, a legal proceeding required someone to be put under oath, or where someone was forced into making a vow. And these oaths and vows had to be kept as well. But usually, vows and oaths were taken freely, and God said, I will hold the Israelites to their word. Those who bound themselves by vow or oath were obligated to quickly discharge their commitment, or they were guilty of sin. And why was breaking a vow or an oath a sin? Well, Leviticus 19.12 says this, You shall not swear by my name falsely, and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. See, to take a vow or oath and fail to keep it was to make that vow or oath false. But the vow or oath was sworn on the name of God. It was sworn on the name Yahweh. And to associate the holy name of God with sin was to profane God's name. It was to violate the third commandment in Exodus chapter 20, verse 7, which says, You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. So because God was very serious about the glory and the integrity of his name, God was very serious about the performance of vows and oaths sworn by him. But God was also merciful. If you broke an oath made to another person, God made a provision to address this sin in Leviticus 6. There God says that a person who breaks an oath has to bring a guilt offering, an animal sacrifice, to God. But more than that, God also demanded that the person who broke an oath make restitution to the individual that he wronged. He had to fully pay what was owed, plus a 20% penalty. This was no cheap grace. In the same way, if you made a vow to God, say you swore to commit one of your children to God's service perpetually, or you swore to give some property to God, and you wanted out of that vow, it was usually possible to unmake a vow to God, according to Leviticus 27. But to do so, you had to pay money related to the value of what you had sworn to give, plus a 20% penalty, and then you were released from the vow. So that's a summary of the rules under the Old Testament law related to vows and oaths. Vows and oaths were to be fulfilled. That is clearly the expectation of the Old Testament. Psalm 50 says, Pay your vows to the Most High. Ecclesiastes 5 says, When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Or Zechariah 8 says, These are the things that you shall do. Speak the truth to one another. Do not devise evil in your hearts against one another. And love no false oath, for all these things I hate, declares the Lord. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying here, as he accurately summarizes what the law says about swearing vows and oaths. You shall not swear falsely, 
but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. That was God's requirement under the law. And yet, while Jesus faithfully summarizes the law, what he says next is really surprising. He doesn't say, you have heard that it was said, perform your vows and oaths, and I agree with that. Instead, as we keep reading in Matthew 5, we find that Jesus has some very surprising things to say about this subject, which we see now in our second point, in which Jesus in, in issues new instruction, commanding that his disciples refrain from swearing oaths, instead requiring us to simply be people of plain and honest speaking. Matthew 5.33 began with Jesus saying, You have heard that it was said to those of old, and then he summarized the law on this point. Jesus said, This is what Almighty God said in his law about vows and oaths to the Exodus generation of Israelites. But now Jesus says in verse 34, But I say to you. Now, we've pointed out in recent weeks that this is an astonishing statement. That God at Sinai declared X, but now I here speaking to you tell you why? When Jesus says that, he is making an awesome claim to authority, isn't he? He is making an audacious claim to speak with the very authority of God. A shocking claim, and yet it's a true claim. A claim which has been proven by Jesus' own perfect sinless life and by his resurrection from the dead. Indeed, Jesus is the authoritative interpreter of the law, and he is the founder of the new covenant. He is the one who has the right to legislate ethical demands for God's new covenant people. Jesus alone has the right to say, God said X, but I tell you Y. And yet, when Jesus did this earlier in chapter 5, each time we saw that Jesus was not repealing what God had said at Sinai. He was intensifying it. God said, don't murder, but Jesus says, don't even be angry. God said, don't commit adultery, but Jesus says, don't even harbor lustful thoughts. Those aren't really rejections of the law. They are enhancements of the requirement of God, right? But this time God said, fulfill your vows and oaths. But I tell you, Jesus says, do not take an oath at all. That sounds different than what Jesus has been doing in this chapter, doesn't it? Previously, Jesus has elevated the requirements of the law for his disciples, but here it sounds like Jesus is entirely repealing this part of the Old Testament law concerning vows and oaths. But wait, did Jesus not tell us earlier in this chapter, in verse 17, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, unless heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus said the Old Testament law endures forever, down to its smallest letter, its smallest pen stroke. Jesus says he has not come to abolish the law, and that those who undermine even the least of these commandments is the least in God's kingdom. And yet, here in verse 34, Jesus seems to be rejecting a part of the law. How is he not contradicting his own words? How is he not abolishing the law? How is he not undermining its commandments? And how is he, as a first century Jew, 
not guilty of sin by teaching against the law? These are critical questions, are they not? How do we answer them? Well, remember that Jesus says he has not come to abolish the law. Jesus is not against the Old Testament law. Jesus is not repudiating the old law as something evil. Far from it. Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. The law anticipated the Messiah. And now Jesus the Messiah has come. And so now the law stands fulfilled in the person and the teaching and the work of Jesus. The legal force of the law has concluded, not because Jesus rejected it or repudiated it, but because it was fulfilled, like a prophecy that has come to pass. Its effectiveness has concluded. That's what Paul means when he says in Ephesians 2.15 that Jesus' death has abolished the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. The old law is no longer legally operative and binding on people. But that doesn't mean that Jesus has just gotten rid of it. No, the law stands forever, perpetually as a part of Scripture, as a forever testimony to God's holiness and faithfulness. But because Jesus is the one to whom the law points, because he is its authoritative interpreter, because he is the culmination of the old covenant and the foundation of the new, Jesus has the right to determine what commands from the old law persist into the era of the new covenant, and to what extent they have effect. And it is in that context of establishing Jesus' authority over the law that he says, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is not saying every part of the old law will remain in force forever, and if you say otherwise, you're the least in the kingdom. No. He's saying that the law, as he sovereignly reinterprets it and applies it, or chooses to not apply it to the new covenant age, is final and binding. Whoever now teaches against what Jesus says about the law, whoever teaches against the new commandments that Jesus gives, that person is the least in the kingdom. That's the idea. So if Jesus here chooses to end the legal force of the commands about oaths and vows, he has the total right to do so, and that is not contrary to what he said earlier in this chapter. In fact, we know that at least on one occasion in his life, Jesus did end a provision of the law. Jesus said in Mark 7, verse 18, Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled? Mark then comments, thus he declared all foods clean. Jesus, as the law's authoritative interpreter and fulfillment, declared that the Jewish dietary law was concluded at this point in his ministry. And he had the absolute right to make that declaration because he has authority over the law. And so Jesus has every right to hold a part of the old law as finished. And so it's not problematic if that is what Jesus is doing in our text. But it seems at first that in our passage, Jesus is doing more than just saying the old law related to oaths and vows is concluded. Because look how he ends this instruction in verse 37. He says, let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than that comes from evil. Or we could translate the last word there as the evil one, that is Satan. Jesus says, don't take oaths, period. He doesn't say anything about vows to God. 
but he does talk about dealing with other people, and he says that his disciples are simply to say yes or no as they deal with others without invoking an oath. Speak plainly and honestly. And anything beyond that, he says, is evil. It's satanic. But wait, the law allowed for vows and oaths. The law sometimes required vows and oaths. And now Jesus seems to be saying that swearing an oath is wicked. How is Jesus here not repudiating part of the old law as wicked? The old law, which was God's word. What is Jesus doing here? How can we understand this? Well, don't despair. Let's just keep reading and let's let Jesus explain what is going on. Let's now read everything that Jesus says here back from verse 34. He says, But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. All right, what's going on here? The Old Testament allowed people to swear vows and oaths on the name of God. Deuteronomy 10.20 says, You shall fear the Lord your God, you shall serve him and hold fast to him, and by his name you shall swear. Vows and oaths were to be sworn on God's name, Yahweh. That's what made them enforceable. Because to break such an oath was to take God's name in vain and receive the punishment for so doing. But about 200 years before Jesus was born, the religious leaders of Israel determined that it was unacceptable for anyone to actually pronounce the name of God. There were only two exceptions to this rule. First, the high priest could say the name of God on that one day of the year, the great day of atonement, when he went into the Holy of Holies of the temple. And second, each afternoon as part of the worship at the temple, the priests would recite the blessing of Numbers 6. Yahweh bless you and keep you. Yahweh make his face to shine on you and be gracious to you. Yahweh lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And the religious leaders said those were the only two times when anyone could actually say the name of God aloud. Otherwise, it was the death penalty. So vows and oaths could no longer be taken in the actual name of God. Well, what happened? People started figuring out ways to make oaths that sounded like they were invoking God's name, but actually weren't. Sort of like in our society today. Sometimes people say gosh instead of God, right? Or people who don't want to use profanity make up words that sound sort of similar to profane words, right? Well, that's basically what the Jews did with the name of God. And this began to become really problematic. Because oaths and vows were legally enforceable, according to the Old Testament, only because they were sworn on the actual name of God. But now oaths were being sworn not on the actual name of God. And this led to prevarication and abuse. And let me show you why. Let me use the familiar example of the word gosh to illustrate what happened. Let's say I promise to sell you my cow. You pay me now, I'll bring you the cow later. And the rabbis have ruled that I'm not allowed to swear in the actual name of God. And so to conclude the deal, I swear to gosh. You give me the money, time goes by, and I never bring you the cow. 
You raise a complaint, and I say, I didn't take a binding oath. I did not actually swear to God. I only swore to Gosh. If I had sworn to God, then yes, I am in sin. But swearing to Gosh, well, that doesn't mean anything. Thanks for the money. And this sort of thing started happening all the time. And it got to the point where the Pharisees invented complex rules about when oaths were binding or not binding. And it all depended on whether you used the right substitute for God's name. If you used an acceptable substitute, the promise was binding. But if you didn't, it wasn't. There's an entire section in the Mishnah which records the legal conclusions of the Pharisees that talks about this. And the Pharisees said, if you swear an oath by any word that begins with the first two letters of the name Yahweh, or the first two letters of the divine title Adonai, meaning my Lord, or if you used a title that was related to God, then the oath was binding. But if you swore by something else, like by heaven and earth, it wasn't binding. You didn't have to keep your word. Over time, other rules were also developed. If you swore by a holy place, it wasn't binding. But if you swore by a holy object in the holy place, it was probably binding. Or if you swore not by a holy place, but towards a holy place, it might be binding. And what developed was this complex system of oaths. A system so complex that most ordinary people wouldn't know when an oath was binding or when it wasn't. And this would allow for all manner of corruption, scheming, and dishonesty. Clever people could figure out safe combinations of words that would protect them from liability and would allow them to trick others into giving them money. And so oaths which were originally intended to make someone act honestly before God, on the penalty of God's vengeance, became, through the interpretation of the Pharisees, the technique for dishonest swindling. And Jesus is appalled by this perversion of the law and this injustice that the law was being twisted to permit. Later in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus tears into the Pharisees on this very issue. Chapter 23, verse 16, he says, Woe to you blind guides who say, If anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools, for which is greater? the gold, or the temple that has made the gold sacred. And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? See, the Pharisees made oaths into a mechanism for the exploitation of the unwary. Something similar happened with vows which were sworn to God. And Jesus will talk about this in chapter 15. He says, God commanded, honor your father and your mother. But if you say, if anyone tells his father or his mother, what you would have gained from me is given to God, he, not, he need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made the void the word of God. See, the Pharisees said you could take a vow and swear to give God your money or your property at death, and if you did so, you were no longer obligated to use your money or your property to take care of your aging parents like God required. So vows stopped being expressions of devotion to God, and they became instruments of sin to justify disobedience to God. 
And so this whole system of vows and oaths had been totally corrupted in Jesus' day. People were saying, what the scripture says about vows and oaths allows me to disobey other parts of the scripture. Now, this is a common practice today among all sorts of people who want to play fast and loose with God's word. They take one verse and try to set it against the rest of the Bible, but Jesus has happened none of it. This is totally contrary to the intention of God's word. Vows and oaths were to point to honesty, not to enable dishonesty. And if vows and oaths have become a means of dishonesty, then Jesus shows us that the true spirit of the law the true intent of God would be for his people to not participate in vows and oaths at all. To be honest, Jesus says, don't participate in this dishonest system. Now, this may still make some of us uneasy because Jesus does seem to be explicitly arguing against something that the law allows. But let me say one more thing here before moving on. Jesus is not actually speaking against the law. Because in addition to allowing vows and oaths, the law also says in Deuteronomy 23:22, if you refrain from vowing, you will not be guilty of sin. And that is the exact position Jesus is staking out here. He isn't speaking against the law. In fact, I think we could argue that Jesus is again intensifying the ethics articulated by the law. The law said you could swear an oath to bolster your credibility before other people, but Jesus holds his people to a higher standard. He says, don't try to bolster your credibility by swearing. Instead, just let your yes mean yes and let your no mean no. That's a much higher standard of honesty than the standard in the law. And so, interestingly, what initially seems like Jesus is speaking against the law actually winds up showing us that Jesus is affirming the true intention of the law. And he is, again, intensifying the standard that God expects from his new covenant people, from you and me, if we're believers. But Jesus here does more than just object to the dishonesty of this system of vows and oaths. He also points out that the Pharisees' corrupt system of vows and oaths is guilty of a greater offense than dishonesty, because it's also guilty of blasphemy. And that's what we see in verses 34 through 36, in which Jesus talks about a number of specific oaths that people were taking in his day, swearing by heaven and earth and Jerusalem, even swearing by their own heads. Now, the Pharisees ruled that none of these four oaths were binding. All of these oaths could be escaped without consequence, because the Pharisees ruled that none of these things really had anything to do with God. And so they were deemed not acceptable substitutes for the name of God that would compel an oath to be binding. So these were the very sorts of oaths that con artists would use to exploit others. But Jesus has a strong word about this, because Jesus says, in fact, every one of these oaths has something to do with God. Look at verse 34. Jesus says, Do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool. The Pharisees say, Swearing by heaven and earth has nothing to do with God. But Jesus points to Isaiah 66.1. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. See, God made creation. God is profoundly connected to heaven and earth. And so to swear by heaven or earth is to swear by God. And to break an oath before 
God. To break an oath by heaven or earth is to blaspheme God, and it is to merit God's wrath. This prevarication will not escape God's justice. In the same way, Jesus says in verse 35, Don't swear by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. The Pharisees said swearing towards Jerusalem was binding, but not swearing by Jerusalem. But Jesus is not amused with this prevarication. He points to Psalm 48, which says, Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised in the city of our God, Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king. The Bible says Jerusalem is the city of the great king, and it seems like Psalm 48 is telling us that is God himself. In the Old Testament, God uniquely manifested his presence in Jerusalem, in the temple. In the future, we are told to anticipate New Jerusalem, where God's presence will forever dwell, shining brightly, the place where believers will live in God's presence forever in bliss. God is profoundly connected to Jerusalem. And so to swear by Jerusalem, Jesus says, is to swear by God. And to break an oath by Jerusalem is to blaspheme God and merit his wrath. Moreover, Jesus says in verse 36, And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Someone could say, well, Jesus, it's true, heaven and earth and Jerusalem, they're connected to God, but my body belongs to me. I can swear by my life, and that has nothing to do with God. But Jesus says, on the contrary, every person's life is not their own. You know, we have no authority over how our bodies work. We cannot, through sheer force of will, change our hair color. Now you might say, well, what about hair dye? And interestingly, some of the church fathers looked at this verse, and they used it to prohibit Christians from dyeing their hair. But that's not what Jesus is talking about. What he's saying is this. If you break an oath, you cannot automatically make yourself older or die. That is uniquely the province of God. God determines our lifespans. That's why suicide is a sin, because we are not sovereign over our lives. It's God who determines how long we'll live and when we die. In chapter 6, Jesus says the same thing. He says, which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to the span of his life? We can't add to our lives, and we're not to imagine that we have the ability or the authority to shorten our lives. For Psalm 139 says, In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. God is sovereign over our lifespans. But to swear by your head means, basically, if I break my oath, may my head be cut off. Or to swear on your own life, cross my heart and hope to die. That basically says, may I drop dead if I don't fulfill my oath. But Jesus says that usurps God's place. Because it writes a check with our lips that we cannot cash. Our lifespan belongs to God, not us. And so to swear by your head or your life is to blaspheme because it usurps God's place. And so Jesus prohibits believers to participate in the Pharisaic system of oaths for two reasons, because it promoted dishonesty and it countenanced blasphemy. And so Jesus concludes the discussion by saying, again, verse 37, Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil.
participation in an evil system of oaths and vows, or prevarication, playing word games to justify dishonesty, this is not acceptable for the people of God. Jesus' disciples belong to Jesus, who has declared in John 14 that in addition to being the way and the life, he is also the truth. Lying has nothing to do with Jesus. Lying has nothing to do with God either, God the Father, because God's law insisted on honesty. And Jesus says in John 17 that God's word is truth. Deception and prevarication, twisting God's word to allow and legitimate lying, this has nothing to do with the Lord. This all comes from the evil one, whom John 8.44 calls the father of lies. And believers must not participate in what is satanic. So Jesus says, don't participate in this system of deception. And instead of playing games with the truth, Instead of even trying to enhance your credibility by swearing an oath, here Jesus says is the ethic that we must live by, an ethic of plain speaking. Mean what you say and keep your word and live with such integrity so that people believe your word without you needing to appeal to oaths or witnesses or God as my judge. And Jesus' brother James made this same point in James 5.12. Above all, my brothers, he says, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Dishonesty is not something God smiles on. Dishonesty in your relationship or your family, your relationship with your parents, your business, your friends, dishonesty before God, dishonesty before any people, none of it amuses God. All of it is something that he will condemn. You know, in our society, I think we are conditioned to, to think that lying is a small deal. The Bible doesn't see it that way at all. Proverbs 6 says, there are six things the Lord hates, yea, seven are an abomination to him. He said, arrogant eyes, a lying tongue. A lying tongue is number two on the list of things that God says he hates. In fact, God says in Psalm 101.7, No one who practices deceit shall dwell in my house. No one who utters lies shall continue before my eyes. And you say, well, yeah, but that, those verses are from the Old Testament. I'll tell you, the New Testament says the same thing. Colossians 3.9 says, Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you are a new creation. You're not to live like you used to. You know, unregenerate people, they make regular practice of lying. But that's not to be you anymore. Believer, have integrity in your speech. Likewise, in 1 Timothy 1, Paul lists a whole bunch of sins. He talks about those who strike their fathers and mothers, murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. Like murder, like sexual sin, like kidnapping and enslaving someone, like beating up your parents, lying is that class of outrageous sin which is totally inconsistent with the gospel. 
In fact, Jesus says near the very end of the Bible, in Revelation 21.8, As for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in a lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Jesus says lying deserves hell. And in the end, some people will be in hell forever simply because they were liars. So lying is a very serious matter. And believers are to be people who speak the truth. We must speak the truth generally so that we maintain a good witness before the world. You know, in a few years from now, I think, when we gain the benefit of hindsight and we look back on the years we're living in and that we've just recently lived in, I think a lot of evangelicals will despair about the damage that was done to the gospel because of the fact that we allowed so many conspiracy theories and falsehoods to continue in churches unchecked. Because we have totally forgotten that we are to maintain a good witness before the world in part by being vigorously committed to the truth. The first part of the armor of God with which the church withstands the attack of the evil one is, according to Ephesians 6, the belt of truth. We are to be passionately committed to the truth, and we are to vigorously oppose every form of falsehood. Falsehood has no place among the people of God, and so we are to speak and act like unbelievers are watching us to determine the validity of the gospel, because they are. Matthew 5.14, Jesus says, You are the light of the world. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Friends, nobody's going to glorify God for a lie that you tell or reposting some falsehood on social media. Friends, the world doesn't need more lies. They've already got that. And if we're to be salt in this world, we've got to be different than the world. And one way we can be radically different is by being totally committed speaking the truth. And if we're to speak the truth generally, how much more should we speak the truth to other people in the church? Ephesians 4.25 says, Having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Believing friends, we are all members of Christ's body. We are deeply and profoundly connected, and so we've got to be honest with one another. And when we aren't, it's like the body of Christ inflicting self-inflicted wounds on other parts of the body. It's a horrible picture. Friends, dishonesty in the church is something God takes very seriously. And if you've got questions about that, read Acts chapter 5, where God struck two people dead because they told a lie to the assembled church. As the people of Jesus, friends, we are to speak the truth. But let me briefly finish now with my last point that addresses some practical implications of this instruction. First, we might wonder, does this mean we always have to speak the truth? Is lying never justified? And I found that there are two situations that people often ask about whether it's okay to lie. The first situation is where we fear telling someone the truth because we don't want to hurt or offend them. And so we think what's got to be better to lie. This question often comes up at home, right? When one spouse says to the other, do I look good in this outfit when they don't? I found it also comes up in churches often when someone wants to sing or teach and 
it's painfully obvious that that really isn't their gift. But you know, we don't want to hurt people that we care about, and so we often don't want to speak a painful truth. But friends, we've got to speak the truth, because people need to hear the truth, and they need to hear it from someone who loves them. I always think when I see someone who can't sing doing special music at a church or singing on a reality show, isn't it sad that no one around them loved them enough to stop them from doing this, right? Because the truth is, if we don't speak the truth, we're doing two things. First, we're setting someone up to receive scorn they didn't need to receive. And second, and more importantly, we're allowing a place for deception in our relationships. And, you know, we can say, well, that's, that it's deception with good intention. But, friends, it's really dangerous to let lying gain any foothold in our lives. Now, that doesn't mean we've got to be nasty about it when we have to relay an unpleasant truth. We should be loving and find kind ways to express what should be expressed without crushing someone. But we're not to be liars, friends, even when it would be easy to rationalize our lies. But there's a second situation people often ask, is it okay to lie? What if telling the truth would actually lead to more sin? The classic example here is the Nazis banging on the door of a German Christian who is hiding some Jews in his house. And the Nazis say, where are the Jews? Should he tell the truth, knowing what will happen if he does? Or should he lie? What does God require of him? Well, interestingly, the Bible gives us two examples very similar to this. In Exodus 1, Pharaoh orders the slaughter of Israelite newborns. And he orders Hebrew midwives to carry out this slaughter. But they don't. And when asked about it, they lie to Pharaoh, explaining why they didn't kill these babies. But they lied so that they wouldn't have to participate in murder. And the text explicitly says that as a result, God dealt well with the midwives. In the same way, in Joshua 2, the prostitute Rahab encounters the Israelite spies who come to scout out Jericho. And men come from the king of Jericho to arrest the spies. And Rahab hides them and lies to the king's men. Was this justified? Well, surprisingly, many Christians say no. They say, well, lying is sin, and Rahab lied, so she's sinning. But that's not what the Bible says. Hebrews 11.31 says, By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient, because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. And James 2.25 says, Was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? But the Bible doesn't view Rahab's conduct as evil, but as good. Why? Because we cannot think about sin in a purely mechanistic way. Sin is rebellion against God. And what Rahab does in protecting the spies is not rebellion against God, it is allegiance to God. She's acting in faith, taking a personal risk to protect God's men and to advance the mission that God had called Israel to. Now some people say, well, Rahab didn't have to lie. God could have shown Rahab another way than lying. And I suppose that's theoretically true. But what would that have looked like in real time? The soldiers come and she says, the spies are over here. I doubt the Israelite spies would have understood that to be an act of faith in their God. They would have thought that she betrayed them, not that she was being loyal to the Lord. She would not have been spared by the Israelites when Jericho fell. 
Rahab had to make a split-second decision. Would she obey her earthly king or her heavenly king when their agendas were in direct conflict? And she chose to serve the Lord, and she chose rightly. And I think that's the answer to the question of a tyrannical government demanding that we reveal the location of people that it unjustly wants to kill. We've got to decide, are we going to serve evil or will we serve the Lord? In that case, there are larger issues at stake than just speaking truth. In fact, if you really want to speak the truth in that situation, you say to the government, this is evil and I'm not going to participate in it. But outside of this one very limited sort of circumstance in which telling the truth would make us complicit in the evil of man and disobedient to the broader will of God, generally the Bible's answer is that it condemns deceit and it commands that we speak the truth to one another. And so we can say that the vast majority of time, believers are to be people who speak the truth. And that's really the big idea that Jesus gives us in this passage. But I want to address one last subject here, which is this. Is it always wrong to swear an oath or a vow? You know, some denominations of Christians have looked at our passage, and they have concluded that all vows and oaths are sinful no matter the circumstance. So they tell their adherents, don't swear an oath in court. Don't take a vow in marriage. Uh, for this very reason, Franklin Pierce said, I affirm, instead of I solemnly swear, when he took the presidential oath of office. Because they say this passage disallows any swearing. And I've got to say, taken most literally, our passage does read that way. And yet, in Matthew 26, when Jesus is on trial, he stands silent throughout the entire proceeding, but in verse 63, the high priest puts Jesus under oath. He says, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, you have said so, but I tell you from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power, coming on the clouds of heaven. Jesus testified under oath. In the same way, in Acts chapter 18, the apostle Paul took a vow to God, and nothing in the Bible suggests this was improper. Moreover, in Hebrews chapter 6, we read that God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, and he guaranteed it with an oath, so that we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. God himself swore an oath, and it's impossible for God to sin, so we've got to understand that swearing an oath is not in itself sinful because God himself has sworn an oath to encourage his people that our salvation is secure. What we need to understand is that when we consider our passage today in the broader context of the New Testament, Jesus is not here telling us that all oaths or vows are inherently evil. What he is telling us is that his people ought to be so fundamentally honest that there is no need for us to swear to bolster our credibility, and that it is absolutely unacceptable for his people to participate in prevarication or deception. And so, friends, I want you and me to consider our speech. We've all lied at times, beginning when we were very little. I see that with Joshua. Perhaps continuing up to the present day. We're all guilty in this area to some degree. We've all missed the mark. And make no mistake, God's standard is not... Are you generally a truthful person 70% of the time? The last verse of our chapter says, You must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And we've all fallen short of that. But thankfully, Christ didn't. 
As 1 Peter 2 says, no deceit was found in his mouth. Jesus perfectly fulfilled the demands of God. And in the cross, he offers to take all of our sin and give us his perfect righteousness. And so despite our failures in this area, there is immense hope for us. And so I want to conclude today with three appeals. First, if you have never turned away from your life of sin and deception and turned to Christ, if you have never fled to the cross and cast yourself on the mercy of Jesus, do so. Because your lies and other sins have put you squarely on a collision course with the eternal wrath of God. Repent and entrust yourself to Jesus' deity, death, and resurrection. Second, if you have come to Christ, and as you've listened to this sermon, if the Holy Spirit has reminded you of lies or half-truths or truths that you've presented in a false light, which you've been telling other people, then friends, don't harden your heart to the truth of this word. Deal with the, the sin in your life. Come clean from your lies. Confess your sin to God and to those you've wronged. And where appropriate, make restitution. If you've been dishonest in business, come clean and pay back what you owe. If you've been lying about sin in a relationship, or kids, if you've been lying to your parents, come clean and fess up. Because if you are a Christian, you are to speak the truth. Confess your sin and repent and be free from the terrible burden that comes from living under the, the burden of deception. And finally, for all of us who belong to Christ, let us guard our tongues. It's so easy to let falsehood just roll out of our mouths, isn't it? We've got to be careful what we say. We've got to be careful to speak the truth. Friends, we can be people of honesty because at the cross we have been set free from slavery to sin. We no longer serve the father of lies, we serve the father of truth. And so we can be and we must be honest. Now, that's no excuse to be unkind. Ephesians 4 talks about speaking the truth in love, and in context that's about preaching. But it's also a good way to summarize how we should interact with others. Be kind, especially if you've got to speak a hard truth. But be honest. And at the same time, be tactful. Don't forget what's appropriate. I know a church group who practices what they call radical confession. They say, let's tell the truth without a filter. And so they have men in their, in their group go up to women and say, I've got to confess, I've been lusting after you. Okay, that is just an excuse to act indecently and provoke sin in other people in the name of honesty. Okay, Jesus is not calling us to that kind of honesty. Jesus is calling us to an honesty that has propriety, that governs our tongues. And Jesus is telling us in no uncertain terms that we must not play the world's game, thinking prevarication and deception are acceptable. Instead, may we be able to say with the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 4.2 that we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cutting or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God.